Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. The grace and the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with all of us this day. I just have to say, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. If, if that, my, my old preacher from back in the day used to say, if that doesn't light your fire, your wood is wet. <laughs> Whoo! So uh, the rest of our church family in the Family Life Center, the choir just uh, blew the roof off in here with a, with a word, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And we know that today you are singing at the beginning of worship, um, your love awakens me. And I am provoked by this truth. It, it takes an awakening within us to muster every breath to praise the Lord, right? Because you and I have had a week. I guarantee you, we've had a week. And in the weeks that you and I have around here, we can lose our breath in many worthy and unworthy places. And it takes God's love awakening us to muster every breath that is in us to praise the Lord, for he alone is worthy. Let the church say amen. Amen. Yes. So I want to encourage you to turn with me uh, in the book of Leviticus to chapter 11. And as you're turning to chapter 11 today, we have a special moment that we get to share together, uh, both in this room, in our Family Life Center, as well as those watching online. We have a member of our congregation here today that I just want to take a moment to recognize uh, Mary Martin, I think that you're sitting back here. There, there you are. Mary, would you mind standing? There you go, Mary. Yeah. Today, Mary celebrates her, we celebrate this week, her 100th birthday. Yeah. 100. Yeah, let's celebrate. Let's celebrate. Happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, happy birthday dear Mary, happy birthday to you. Well done, well done, amen. All right. Thank you. You may be seated. Happy birthday, Mary. We are so grateful that you're here with us today. So grateful. On a time change Sunday, too. You got up and came to church. What a great example you are to all of us. And so I'm going to ask you to uh, turn in your Bibles as we study the book of Leviticus, which is really the real reason Mary got up to come today. (laughs) And I want to ask you to just hold your place in Leviticus 11. Because we're going to dive deeply into the Word of God in just a moment. Um, uh, you, you've come to trust that by now, right? We're going to go so deep, you ask for air. I just want to, 
But for now, hold your place at Leviticus 11. Because I want to begin this way. Every Sunday when we gather in worship, at the end of the sermon, or at the end of actually the worship service, right before the benediction, and, and you know, when we do the benediction in here, then, then you know, I act like Moses and we part the waters and I come out this room and go to the Family Life Center and, and I issue a benediction there to the rest of our church family. But before I do the benediction every Sunday, I usually say something like this. And now let's stand and join hands across the aisles as we prepare for the most important moment in worship. And then I usually say something like this. It's, it's not the preaching, it's not the singing, it's not the praying, it's not the reading, it's the moment when we gather everything that we've experienced here, all of the grace and all of the love and all of the power and all of the, the hope that we've been able to encounter here in this space, now is the moment when we scatter into a world hungry and thirsty for all those things and we scatter in order to live out those things in the presence of a hurting world. And then I do the benediction and we move, we move into, the, uh, into our, our week. And the reason I do that, I hear the theme of Rocky playing, by the way. Right? Do you hear the theme of Rocky playing? It makes me kind of <laughs> ready to preach. So, hey, yo, hey, yo, yo. <laughs> <laughs> the reason I say that every week before we leave, I want that to be one of the last things we hear. You know why? Because in my gut, at the deepest place of me, I believe that nothing we do here matters unless it grows feet and we live it out there. Yeah. See, I believe when James says it, uh, I believe what James says when he says in chapter 2, faith by itself, if it has no works, if it has no outward demonstration, if it has no works, faith is dead. James also says earlier in the book, to be doers of the word and not merely hearers only. That means that every time we gather in this space, the place where we gather to, to be encouraged and to be filled up and strengthened in heart and mind, then, then no sermon, no, no, no song, no choir, no worship band, no baptism, no child dedication, no breaking of bread will ever matter unless we leave this place and live like it actually does matter. And the reason I'm telling you all of that, and the reason I say that every week, but the reason I'm importing that out today is because when we come to the place where we are in Leviticus, we have now come to a brand new section of the book of Leviticus, and this is the whole point. For the first 10 chapters of Leviticus, it's all been about shaping the people as a people of God. It's about creating a space where God can abide with them and they can abide with God and God can draw them in. Vaikra, come in, gather near. And there is in the first 10 chapters a, a giving of instructions, uh, detailed rituals, practices that they can put in place in the tabernacle. We're just going to call it in church where they can encounter God and be transformed by God. But when you turn the page, 
From Leviticus chapter 10 to Leviticus chapter 11, the whole point of Leviticus begins to shift. It now changes from a focus of what happens inside church to what happens when you walk out of church and live out your transformation in the mundane, ordinary, routine regiment of day-to-day life. Leviticus, at its very heart, is attempting to say no matter what you experience in the tabernacle, in worship, no matter what kind of transformation takes place, it only matters if you learn how to apply what has happened in the ordinary uphill slog of life. And in these next few chapters, chapter 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15, it gets very physical. There's a physicality to it. In, in the tabernacle, it's very ethereal. You know, we're going to talk about burnt offering and what the smoke means and symbolizes. But, but here in chapters 11 through 15, there's a physicality to it. In, in other words, we're going to talk about food. It doesn't get more ordinary than that. We're going to talk about childbirth. We're going to talk about skin diseases and household mold for all. Household mold and even bodily fluids which I will not preach in detail, just a program note. But it's all there. And why is it all there? This is the point I want you to keep remembering as we move to this section because all of the transformation that happens in church only matters if that transformation gets lived out in the ordinary, very low level, on the ground, boots in the sand kind of level in what you eat and what you think about your body and how you live at home. And that's what we're digging into here today. And isn't this, if we're being honest, exactly what we, what we wonder every week of our own lives? Do we not at some level, all of us, your pastors included, don't we at all, all of us at some level, come into the practice of faith and we say, you know, how does, how does this all really matter in my real life? I mean, because it can get really beautiful, the music, as we've seen this morning. And it can get creative and provocative, maybe uh, a little bit encouraging uh, in our Bible studies, Sunday school classes, in our sermons. But, But what does it really matter to my everyday, drop off the kids at soccer, pick up the dry cleaning, pay the bills, stop by and get some some more milk because we're out, that kind of life. Leviticus, Leviticus is attempting to say something about that. So I want us to talk about that today, but there are two things I want to talk about that have to be on the table in order to understand what Leviticus is doing for us. The first thing that we want to talk about today is practicing presence. Practicing presence. And the second thing that we want to talk about today is keeping kosher when bacon smells so good. (laughs) practicing presence and keeping kosher when bacon smells so good. Let's take a moment and offer a word of prayer. God, we want to confess to you in this moment that it is not by accident that any of us are here today. We recognize that we may have accidentally stumbled out of bed. We may have accidentally run late because it was later than we thought it was. We may have accidentally 
made our way into this room, but we recognize and confess that there are no accidents with you. That you have brought us here because you, you have something that you want to do in us and through us and among us. And our simple prayer is this, that you do it. For our minds are open and our hearts are yielded and we pray that you would say something to us that so transforms our lives that we leave this place and, and the world itself is never the same. We pray these things in the name of Christ, the Lord of life. Amen. Amen. Practicing presence. In the 17th century, there was a monk, uh, a Caramelite monk, uh, by the name of Brother Lawrence. Brother Lawrence was a simple man, and he, he embraced a simple way of life. He, he served his uh, other brothers in the order, and he, he found his, his deepest expression of spirituality uh, in the normal, routine, run-of-the-mill events of everyday life. In fact, when he was asked what the most important business is, he said that our only business as followers of God, our only business is to please God. Our only business is to please God. But he had a particular, and maybe I might even say peculiar way to think about pleasing God. He believed that we could please God not just in the cathedrals, in the tabernacles, in the great church halls of the world, but he believed we pleased God most not with what happens in there, but what happens when we leave that place and we, we do dishes in the kitchen and we change laundry and we just do life. He said that's the venue where we please God most. In fact, his most famous writing was produced after his death. It was called uh, The Practice of the Presence of God. The Practice of the Presence of God. Because you and I, you, you know this, I even insinuated a moment ago, we can go through life halfway in a coma just doing life we're running so fast doing so much that we can barely recognize the people around us whom we love let alone the mystery of the God who is in and above and through all things but he said that takes practice you can practice the presence of God everywhere you go uh, my favorite quote from brother Lawrence uh, is is this the time of business does not, with me, differ from the time of prayer. <laughs> and in the noise and clutter of my kitchen, while several persons are at the same time calling for different things, I possess God with as much or with as great tranquility as if I were upon my knees at the blessed sacrament. Isn't that beautiful? I, I mean, I know it can seem so very distant because busy I mean, Brother Lawrence, you know, I get what you're saying, but your definition of busy probably has nothing on our definition of busy in our over-busy, under-reflective world that we live in, right? But Brother Lawrence says it's possible that in busyness we can glorify God and commune with God in as much intimacy as if we were on our knees at the blessed sacrament itself. You know, this is why he got a nickname, his nickname was the patron saint of pots and pans. 
Isn't that great? That's that spectacular. The patron saint of pots and pans. And until I learned that, I thought that was my wife, Laura, because she is in the kitchen communing at all times with God in ways I've never, I've never seen before. She, the patron saint of pots and pans. But do you know why he's able to see God in all places? And, and the, the, the reason he's able to practice the presence of God and commune in the way that he's described is because he believes Ephesians 4, 6. That there is one God and Father of all. Now listen to this language. Who is above all and through all and in all. Do you believe this? Do you believe that we have one God who is God and Father of us all, who is above all and who is through all and in all? If you have one inkling of belief that this is true, it is possible for you to practice the holy presence of God. Brother Lawrence believed the psalmist in Psalm 46. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The earth, the world, and everything that dwells in it is the Lord's. He believed Colossians 1.16 that all things have been created through him and for him. Do you believe this? Because if you believe that all things have been created through him and for him, then, beloved, this, this idea that there is something sacred and something secular in the world is a myth. It means that everything in the world is sacred. That everything belongs to God and everything has come from God and Everything is God-touched and therefore is divine and holy and beautiful and good. And if it is holy and beautiful and good, then there is no secular. It's all spiritual. And what is required of us is the eyes to see it. To recognize that God is in and through and above all things. Why is this important this morning? Because this is what Leviticus is attempting to do to our ancient sisters and brothers. And it remains true for you and me today. That there is no division between where God is and where God is not. There is no realm outside of the realm of God. That means everything that happens in the holy space of worship is meant to somehow equip and empower and provoke us to step outside these holy spaces and recognize, oh, the whole thing is a holy space. The whole thing teeming with God. The whole thing, a divine invitation to Vaikra. Draw near to me. My favorite a quote from Elizabeth Barrett Browning, and I've, I've used it so many times because it's just part of how I have begun to see God in our world. This is what she says. Earth is crammed with heaven. I just love that phrase. Every bush, every common bush, a fire with God. But only they who see take off their shoes. The rest sit around it and pluck blackberries. Do you see? 
the ancients believed that it only matters if we learn how to see God calling us to the ordinary, mundane events of everyday life. When you go and pick up dry cleaning, when you shop for groceries, when you drop off the kids, when you visit someone who is sick, whenever you love an enemy or forgive a debtor, whenever you pray for someone who has persecuted you, whatever it is that you do when you leave this place, it's in that venue that you have the capacity to glorify God better than any other space because it requires an awakening on your part to see the God who is near you in order to bow before him. And Leviticus says it begins with something as ordinary as food. It doesn't get more ordinary than supper time. And that leads us to talking about this peculiar passage that we'll read. In Leviticus chapter 11, it leads us to keeping kosher when bacon smells so good. Now, turn with me to the 11th chapter, and as you do, I just got to say, we're about to read a, a chapter in which the instruction is, when you leave the realm of worship and go into everyday life, one of the extraordinarily ordinary places is in what you do at mealtime. And we're about to get a list of specific instructions about what kinds of food are clean and what kinds are unclean. What kind can you eat and what kind are the ancients told they cannot eat? And as I'm doing that, I'm thinking to myself, I struggle because you know we're about to hear that they can't eat bacon. And I don't know if I want to imagine a world without the smell of frying bacon. Come on, so can I get a witness? But like I've been saying from the beginning of this study, it's not just what the Bible says. It's what the Bible does in the lives of those who hear what it says. So go with me to 11, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Say to the Israelites, Of all the animals that live on land, these are the ones you may eat. You may eat any animal that has divided hoof, a divided hoof, and that chews the cud. There are some that only chew the cud or only have a divided hoof, but you must not eat them. The camel, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is ceremonially unclean for you. The hyrax, uh, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is unclean for you. The rabbit, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is unclean for you. And the pig, there we go. And the pig, though it has a divided hoof, does not chew the cud. It is unclean for you, and you must not eat their meat or touch their carcasses. They are unclean to you. Now, pay attention to the structure of the text. These are the animals you can't eat. Now, verse 9. Of all the creatures living in the water of the seas and the streams, you may eat any that have fins and scales. And then it continues in that paragraph to talk about which kinds you can eat and not eat. And then skipping down to verse 13, these are the birds you are to regard as unclean and not eat because they are unclean. And then there is a list, a description of the birds that are on and off limits. Skipping down to verse 20, 
all flying insects that walk on all fours are to be regarded as unclean by you. And then a description of the bugs you can eat and the bugs you can't eat. Verse 29, of the animals that move along the ground, these are unclean for you. And then a list, which includes things like rats and lizards, as if you were tempted to eat those anyway. And then we move down to the most important uh, verse, the most important verse. In verse 45, I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. These are the regulations concerning, watch the structure, animals, birds, every living thing that moves about in the water, and every creature that moves along the ground. You must distinguish between the unclean and the clean, between living creatures that may be eaten and those that may not be eaten. The word of the Lord. The thing that must be understood as we dig into this text is we have to remember this sounds like an odd instruction because to you and me, we're modern listeners, and, and honestly, while we may have rigid eating plans or diets that you may be on, not many of us in here, I would venture to say, not many, would be on a kosher meal plan. But what's important to remember is not what the text is saying only, but what is the text doing in the lives of those who hear what it's saying. So there are a couple of things I want to kind of lay out for us. And the first is this, an observation that you have to understand when reading any of these passages, chapters 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. We're entering into a world that has clean and unclean in it. That's what we're being introduced to in Leviticus 11 through 15. That the world is made up of both clean and unclean. And honestly, we could speak for a month of Sundays on what it means to live in a world of clean and unclean. That it's not such an ancient idea after all. This past Wednesday night during Ash Wednesday, so many of us gathered in this room in a worship service to really acknowledge the reality that within each of us there is both clean and unclean. Competing for our allegiance all the time. But in this text, it's important to understand when you hear the text talking about unclean food or unclean animals, it's not the same thing as saying evil or bad or sinful. Unclean in this chapter doesn't mean bad. It just means off limits. God is always a God who prefers that we would live within the boundary-keeping life. There are some animals that you may eat and some that you may not eat, he tells the ancients. And something that has, has always kind of um, piqued my curiosity is what, what, what do our bodies look like if we do keep kosher? Reality is, it's not so bad for you. I'm not, I'm not advocating because I'm going to eat like bacon tomorrow. But, but I'm saying, I just, I, we do know this, during the plagues of Europe, when vermin like rats carried the plague from place to place and there were so many who died, guess who didn't die? those who kept kosher diets. In fact, it even caused a problem. They began to look suspicious and great persecutions began among the Jewish people because they were healthy and all they were doing was reading their Bible and obeying it. 
So there could be an argument about the health or the unhealth of the kosher meal, but that's not the point. It's not about what the text says. It's about what the text does. So why would God articulate a list of foods that are good and foods that are not good to eat for us? Well, one thought is because if you noticed the detail of the text, an unclean animal is one that has a cloven hoof or chews the cud. But if it does both, chews the cud and has a cloven hoof, then you can eat it. But if it has one or the other, one theory is this. If an animal has only one of those two things, it is thought by some to be a deviation or a, uh, a, a, an anomaly in their species, which in some situations makes them more vulnerable to predators. And there are some writings among the rabbis who would say, that part of the dietary restriction God issues to his people is to have a diet plan with justice at the center of it. I brought you out of the land of Egypt because there was a predator pressing down upon you. And even in your mealtime preparation, you are not to be predators in this world. And I just think that's beautiful. In fact, there's a story. Postville, Iowa, back in 2008, there was a great raid on this meatpacking plant. It was a kosher meatpacking plant, the largest in the country. But it was found out that they had about 300 uh, illegal uh, aliens working uh, in that plant. And there was a big raid, biggest in history. But they found some other things about that plant. They were mistreating their employees. There were employee abuses. There was abuse of the animals. They were being mistreated uh, in inhumane ways. Uh, they were paying the undocumented workers way lower than minimum wage because they can get by with it, right? And so at the center of the Postville um, story is, a, is a, a question about justice and injustice. And so a conversation began to emerge around uh, Judeus, or, 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 or Jewish communities around the country. Even if my, my, my package... Uh, that comes from Postville has a stamp on it that says kosher. The question is, is it kosher if it was packaged through unjust means? And there was a whole movement, and now they're required two stamps to show whether a package is truly kosher. One, to say it, it actually is a kosher meat. The other is to say it was prepared and packaged with uh, practices that are just and fair. And I, I just back away from that for a moment and interpret that even in the very dietary plan of a people, there is at the heart of it a call to justice. What could be more beautiful than that? Because God is calling them out to be a unique kind of people in the world, a kind of people who do not oppress but liberate. And even the way you make your sandwiches will show the world what kind of God you believe in. But beyond that, there is one overarching reason why God gives this list of uh, clean and unclean foods. And the word is identity. He calls them out in order to make for himself a people. In verse 45, we read these words again. I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. In other words, be distinct, be set apart. To be holy doesn't mean to be better. It doesn't mean to be more special. 
It just means to be set apart for a particular purpose. So he calls these people out in order to demonstrate in the world a way to exist in the world that looks different. And one of the plain, in-your-face, visible ways to demonstrate that is by the choices that they would make over what they prepare for food. Because all of their neighbors would eat all kinds of foods that would be unclean. But by making the choice to eat these foods and not these foods, it basically gives witness to the world that we belong to this kind of God. And so God is being introduced in Leviticus as one who cares not just about what we sing and say in worship. In fact, later in the prophets, he ends up saying, look, I despise your worship practices because you have come to a place where you worship in beautiful ways, but then you leave worship and you oppress with injustice other peoples of the world. This is Amos, this is Isaiah, this is Jeremiah. So God is calling them out in order to live in the world differently. And one of the plain examples of how to demonstrate that is what you do with your food. Now, there's something else interesting happening in this text. Did you notice the list of animals that were, that were presented? And verse 46 reads, These are the regulations concerning animals, birds, every living thing that moves about in the water, every creature that moves along the ground. If you pay close attention, don't forget, in the Old Testament, there are Old Testament Easter eggs. And that means there is a tucking in to these passages, a clue to pay attention to some other place. That is a list, almost verbatim in the exact same order, that we read from Genesis chapter 1. When God introduces the, the animal world to the, to the creation. Animals that walk on dry land. Animals that fly in the sky. Animals that swim in the sea. And animals that crawl. It's a throwback to creation. And the implication is what? <laughs> the implication is every time you sit down to a meal, you have an opportunity to be recreated all over again. That even something as simple as mealtime, lunchtime, suppertime, is an opportunity for the people of God to practice, to rehearse the creation of the world in them once more. So eating bacon won't kill them. But eating bacon or eating any of these unclean foods would kill their unique witness in the world. And the question is, what is it that's killing our unique witness in the world? So when I was at Carson Newman um, about a thousand years ago, there was a student who had come uh, at the same time that I was there. He was from China. He had a family. Uh, he had come on scholarship, able to study at Carson Newman. He came to study theology. We became friends. His name was Wong. Uh, he learned eventually to kind of roll his eyes at my stupid humor because I would walk up to him after we'd become friends and I'll say, what's Wong? And, and he said, oh, okay, okay. It took him a while. You know. uh, but then we would study together and we would um, talk about his life in China and we'd talk about my family uh, where I grew up and they were so very different and, and yet so beautifully the same except there's one major difference between Wong and me we would go to the cafeteria to eat and at the cafeteria you could have everything you want to eat 
In fact, you bought a meal plan, you can have as many meals as you want. You could eat all that you can, you, as much as you could put on your tray. In fact, I did a senior presentation as a psych major about food wastefulness on a college campus, a Christian college campus, because we just waste so much food. We take it and not eat it. But I noticed we'd sit down at supper, and I'd have my tray and a couple of desserts, three or four helpings of whatever was the, the meal of the day, and Wong was there too. And I, I kid you not, this was his meal. Um, the day I noticed it, it was a plate with one piece of fish, one scoop of rice, and a glass of water with no ice. That became a pattern. I began to see that again and again. And one day I asked him, um, well, why, do you, why is this all that you eat? Are you not hungry? You, get, you can get dessert. You can get more fish. And this is what he said. I will never forget it. He said, no, this is what my family will eat today. And I eat this to remember who I am and where I'm from. Beloved, you and I will likely not say yes to yielding our lives to a kosher meal plan, right? But if we listen to what the Bible is doing and not just what it's saying, it, is it possible that you can order your life in such a way that every minute detail of your, of your week is devoted to practices that remind you of who you are and where you're from. Because if you can do that, if we can do that, then everything that we do in this tabernacle of worship will matter because we leave this place and in the most mundane, routine, helter-skelter events of every day, you and I are practicing presence, worshiping the Lord. And that makes all the difference. Let's bow together in prayer. God, in this moment, we stop just to say thank you for the gift of being among us in moments like this, in moments of worship, in moments when we are fixed around your word, when we're fixed upon your face when we sing and when we think and when we feel and we pour our hearts out before you. We give you thanks that you welcome us. And we give you thanks that you, in these moments, can transform us because of this encounter with you every week. But we ask for your forgiveness. We ask for your forgiveness for every moment that, that we leave this place and completely ignore all the mysteries and strengths of what it meant to have been here in the first place will you transform us today in every heart to gather today will you show us how to take the strength of your holy presence here and look for it in the world in which we will return in just a few moments and i pray that you would work on somebody's mind and heart this day to open up their lives to your holy love we pray that in Christ's name. Amen.